Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 52, How We Can Meet the Mental Health Needs of Children and Adolescents. My guest, Claire Cohn, MD, is an African-American psychiatrist who specializes in children and adolescents and has practiced in Pittsburgh since 1984. She did her general psychiatry residency at the University of Chicago. Dr. Cohn then moved to Pittsburgh to do her Child and Adolescence Fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh's Western Psychiatric Institute, fell in love with Western Pennsylvania, and has practiced there ever since. She has worked in a variety of settings, including community health clinics, partial hospitals, school-based settings, and she currently works in an inpatient hospital setting. Dr. Cohn has always been active in her community and in fighting for Medicare for All as a member of Physicians for a National Health Program and the Western Pennsylvania Coalition for Single-Payer Health Care. Dr. Claire Cohn, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. So I'd like to start by asking, what were the prevalent mental health problems you saw before the pandemic? Well, I'm a child psychiatrist, but I also see a lot of adults too. So there's some overlap, all ages, depression and anxiety. And this is, the literature shows this is what is most commonly seen. Um, A fair amount, all ages of people who have experienced trauma and a fair amount of people of adults um, who have substance abuse issues um, and teenagers with substance abuse issues. That's not as common in prepubertal children. In prepubertal children in particular, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a biggie. Also, a lot of developmental disorders that have psychiatric or mental health manifestations, such as um, autistic spectrum disorders, which are really a neurological, um, atypical neurological development. They have psychiatric manifestations. Um, ADHD, again, uh, learning problems and intellectual disabilities. Um, and those are, those are, I, I think those are pretty much the bread and butter things. There's some other things that are less common, like, from teenagers to adults, psychotic disorders such as bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and um, schizoaffective disorder. Um, those are a little less common, but they're also um, seen with some frequency, especially if one works as an inpatient physician. And how has that mix changed, or has it changed since the pandemic? So the diagnoses haven't changed that much. What has changed with, is that there's been an increase in certain things, like there's been an increase in um, 
suicidality, especially in um, children and adolescents. One interesting thing has been there's been an even greater increase. This I've read in the literature, but I think I experienced this too. There's been an even greater increase in kids between the ages of 10 and 14. Uh, and I don't think anybody is really clear on that. An increase in um, acting out behaviors in children, um, abuse, uh, physical abuse. I'm not so sure about sexual abuse, domestic violence. Um, an increase in anxiety, definitely, for adults. For people who have OCD symptoms, an increase in OCD symptoms, I've seen that. And maybe an exacerbation of depression. So that's basically what I've seen with the pandemic. And children, it's been a real problem with functioning in school. A lot of children, uh, their school functioning, has, both behaviorally and academically, has deteriorated significantly with this pandemic. Do you think that functioning is related to the fact that there's online learning as opposed to them being able to be in class with their friends? Yes, online lear learning has been very difficult for a lot of children. And actually, online telehealth therapy plays a lot of role in why, in why I should have also said this for children, there's been a significant increase in hospitalization. And online, and part of that has been due to online therapies, um, which don't work as well for a variety of reasons um, for for children in particular, and so therefore lead to an increase in hospitalizations also. Well, one of the things, what can we do during the pandemic to make the treatments more effective? especially if they're online? Well, so I know one program, one one what's called, this is concept called partial hospital or they used to be called uh, day treatment centers. And I think for adults, they're sometimes still called that, but they're basically called, at least in Pennsylvania, partial hospital program. And I think one of the things is in uh, those kind of intensive programs like partial hospital or in-home therapies, children are given a lot of in-home therapies in Pennsylvania, that the online would have to be more extensive. So a child who might be going to six hours a day to a partial hospital program, online has translated from many programs to one hour, two or three times a week. So one, increasing the time could help. The other thing that might help is um, coming up with a way where people can have more in-person exposure but still keeping safe in terms of safe distancing and things like masking. That's a little trickier, but um, I suppose if people really wanted to do it, they could figure out some ways to make that happen. I mean, you have to do it in the hospital, so I think there's some ways you could make it happen in other settings. Well, we addressed one of the questions a little bit is how have the problems treating patients changed during the pandemic, but what problems did you have treating patients before the pandemic? Have those problems remained, and are there still problems treating patients during the pandemic that you haven't covered? So first, let me say I've been a psychiatrist for 
35 plus years. So I've been around a lot to see a lot of changes in how mental health is provided. And and I would say the biggest impact that I see in how mental health is provided in the United States is one of the main reasons I'm for Medicare for All. And that's the privatization of mental health and the making it a financial venture rather than a public good and all the problems that come with that. And a lot of that is felt through the insurance companies, but that's not all. So what I've seen over the years, so we have a large body of information. We don't know everything about mental health, but we have a large body of information on what what is conducive to mental health for human beings and children in particular. And what compromises and makes it more difficult to be healthy. And from that, we know that human beings are very, very, and this is not just psychiatric literature. I like to read anthropological literature, sociological literature, all that kind of stuff. So when we look at that, we know that children need a lot of social care. It doesn't actually have to necessarily be from primary caregivers. It can be a community venture, and there are a lot of societies where the care uh, and bringing up children in a healthy way is a community venture, not just left to individual families. And when children have some innate or compromise or atypicalness about them, it becomes even more important that social involvement. We know that when children are having problems, that is that those problems are always in the context of systems, family systems, and psychosocial systems. Treating a child by themselves without taking into account that fact is bound to fail because children are parts of systems. They're not entities that stand by themselves. Human beings are not. And even for adults, that's true. So we know all of this. And the biggest problem, and I'll go smaller, I'm going to start globally. The biggest problem is that the private for-profit approach to addressing mental health requires, and by necessity, uh, forces everything to be focused on the individual in the moment, okay? So that all those things we know, human behavior is very complex. It's not a simple thing, and it's not easy to change. All those things we know that go into Affecting and changing human mental health and human behavior are forced to be diminished and ignored by the for-profit system because the for-profit system wants to look at right now, in the moment, right here, and say, this is what's going on and this is how I make my money. And it really forces, it really forces people to not. And I'll give you an example. Let's say a child is suicidal, okay? It would be a child in adolescence. Children frequently become suicidal, not just from depression, but also from anxiety and also from trauma. And usually it's in the setting of something happening in their neighborhood or family. In the family, it could be a parent who's compromised by mental illness or by substance abuse who's perpetrating, not necessarily because they're being or bad, but just because of their own issues, trauma on that child uh, or causing that child acute distress. Or it could be. Uh, more of a psychosocial thing, 
a mother that works two jobs that can't be there for her, who's rarely there for her child when she does come up, is tired and is snapping at the child and doesn't want to be father for the child, who doesn't have adequate daycare because she can't afford it and leaves the child alone for long stretches of time. So these are all things, and they're just as important to the treatment of that suicidal and depressed child as any medicine might be. And if you don't take those things into account, you cannot adequately treat a child in a way that results in their healing and regaining mental health. So that child comes in the hospital in the past, and I'm not saying that everything is done in the past. You could have a lot of criticism about the past, Joe, but I'm just saying in the past, at least people were geared and taught to think about that child was in a system, okay? So you didn't just look at that child. Are they suicidal right now or not? Once they are, oh, goodbye, out the hospital. But rather we looked at what's going on in the family, what's going on in the community, how does that play a role and why this child deteriorates at that point, and what can we do? We're not going to solve it in the hospital, but what can we do to start things on the road to making life better for this child and helping this child overcome what challenges they may innately have or barriers or challenges that were created by their environment. And so so children used to, when I first started, they used to stay in the hospital longer. And I'm not saying longer is necessarily better, but at this point, it's too short because you can't deal with these things in a few days. But children used to come in the hospital Children who came in the hospital rarely came in more than once, Joe. They'd be there. They'd be there for several months. They'd never come back again. If a child came back, they were extremely, extremely disturbed and ill. It was very rare that children came back. And that's because you got a chance to really get a sense of what was going on. One thing in particular that makes children really different from adults is children are very reactive to What's the care environment around them, whether they have mental illness or not? And just by changing the care environment, the environment in which the child is being cared for, you change behavior dramatically. That's the nature of children. That's the normal nature. So when you take a child who is having problems functioning in their home and you put them in a place like a hospital, that's going to introduce artifacts right there that, that have nothing to do with what was going on in the home. For example, a child who was maybe acting out and violent and aggressive and kicking and biting, when they first come in the hospital, you may not see that behavior at all at first because now naturally what becomes more important to the child is looking for their caregiver because children, without even thinking about it, are naturally programmed to look for, to understand that they need a caregiver to survive in the world. So now, many times what happens, a kid comes in the hospital, you don't see the behaviors that brought them in because they're real focused on regaining their caregiver. And that the, the symptoms that may be crying and depression, but the symptoms may be just being quiet and withdrawn and not showing any behaviors at all. So you have an insurance company, child's not showing that behavior. We're not authorizing another day. They have to leave. So then a child leaves and they go right back out and begin those behaviors again because now they're back in their natural environment with their caregiver. So those behaviors come back. So then they come back in the hospital. But then a kid comes back, they're not showing that behavior. Insurance company, and you cannot tell an insurance company, but they were showing that at home. And I hope I didn't get too emotional about this because I was going to say, but only what's important is what the child is doing now. You don't know how many times doctors hear that. Is the child doing that right this day? Sometimes, 
sometimes a child will show up and down behaviors. One day they'll be suicidal or aggressive or tantruming or screaming or pulling their hair out. The next day they'll appear calm. And the day after they'll, they'll be acting out again. I can tell you insurance companies will pick day by day and they will say, well, they didn't show it this day. So we're not paying for that day. It's crazy. Even you can see that that's crazy. You need to look at a child over time. You can't look at a snapshot and, and expect to provide adequate and appropriate mental health treatment. You need to look at a child in the context of systems, in the context of their family and their community, and you need to look at them over time to see their behavior. Look at this crazy thing of looking at behavior in the moment, only on this day. I've had insurance say, you can't talk about it. I'll say, well, on Sunday they didn't say they were suicidal. But Monday, they just, no, I don't want to hear about Monday. I'm only talking about Sunday. <laughs> you know how many times I've had from an insurance company and the doctors have heard from an insurance company. So this is why kids nowadays, you see kids and they have four or five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten hospitalizations. I once heard a saying that supposedly people said in Russia, we pretend to do something, you pretend to do that. And I say, we pretend to provide mental health treatment. <laughs> And you pretend that you care about mental health treatment insurance companies. We pretend that we're providing it instead of the focus being what is going on, not just the child, but what is going on with this child in the context of the system they're at function living in, family, school, and community. How is that impacting with what this particular child's qualities are, gifts, and challenges? And what can we do? Since this is a hospital, what can we do to start the child on the road to healing? And the hospital should always just be about road to healing. But you can't do that because all that insurance company wants to know is, are they okay this moment? If they are, get them out. They never want to hear about the complexities of the systems and the environment that a child came from that is causing the dysfunction. On top of that, so you have a system where children are are sent out without really addressing issues, which is why they come back, because you're pretending that you're addressing them because in the moment they were they were okay, or in the moment they were just saying they wanted to go home and see their mom. But kids will say that's one manifestation of children reacting to a change in caregiving environment, number one. Then you have the issue of, and I'm not against medications, but I happen to agree that we in the mental health profession in the United States over Medicaid children. How does that happen? Well, one, many of these medicines, many of them, not all, take a while for you to see the effect and know if they're working, number one. And since most hospitalizations, insurance is pushed for them to be three to seven days, and you have to fight to get it to be longer than that, frequently you don't know if a medication intervention you made really did anything at all. And to keep kids longer than three to seven days, many times, the only way you keep them is the insurance company said, well, you're not making a change in medicine, so they have to go. Um, instead of we're trying to do this intervention, uh, like do some sessions to improve bonding between the parent and the child or address this particular issue, they don't want to hear that. Just what, are you making a medicine change? So then doctors put on medicine in part to try to help a kid stay longer so they can address things. But nobody talks about these things. Everybody pretends that they're doing everything that's just 
in the best patient care. They don't talk about this real intrusiveness and interference by insurance on the care. Then on top of that, many private insurances don't cover services that some complex cases of children need, and children in particular, like children with autistic disorders or trauma needs, such as when they leave the hospital, they may need more intensive services like in-home family-based services, partial hospital. Before I was was working in this hospital, I worked in a partial program for years, which the insurance company hate, but we had these eight, they weren't all the same companies, these eight partial programs in Pennsylvania, which I believe is the reason why hospitalizations were less at that point in time. And they were programs that children went to where the one I was in had intensive therapies and not only had social workers and therapists, it had lots of music. And there's a lot of studies that show that creative activities like music, lots of art, things like art, lots of writing stuff, all kinds of things for children. There's a lot of studies that show that these are things that help children to learn how to self-regulate, self-introspect, and heal and deal with stress and trauma. These are very vital things, very important things to do. So we had a program that was rich in those things. We also did things like yoga, transcendental meditation, biofeedback. Then we had an autism program where we did a particular form of behavioral therapy called applied behavioral analysis, which has been shown to be very effective in working with young, severely autistic, nonverbal autistic children. And that program, it had national, not international, but national recognition. I know because I used to look online to see, and they would say, what's a good program in the United States? We actually had people move Western Pennsylvania from other states to be in that program. So we had a grant for one year where we had a staff per child in that part of the program. The whole, the whole partial program wasn't for autistic kids, but that part of the program. People thought we did miracles, and only one-third of the kids that I treat, because I was the psychiatrist for that part of the program, only one-third of the kids were in medicine. But we made phenomenal changes because we could provide the level of intensity. And, you know, and the children didn't stay there forever. They were usually there for a year. Some children were there for two, and then they'd move on, and it was a formative change for them. Now, after the grant was over, because the grant was only for a year, we went down to a staff for every two children. But it was still really good. The level of improvement and change and fundamental improvement and change in these children was was really, it was astounding. I felt really good. And you didn't have, because we weren't just putting pills to try to pretend that we could have a pill that could make a change in a kid real quick. We were really doing some intensive interventions. And it would take me all day to explain to you uh, the program. But just people who are listening, you know what I'm talking about. It was a Program that was intense in applied behavioral analysis. And you could do the level of fidelity and intensity. Fidelity means that you really truly are doing what you're saying you're doing because of the staff. Now, of course, that's expensive. And up front, that's very expensive. But I really do believe, because I've since been working in a residential treatment facility for autistic kids, that, and from my experience from looking at, and also from what I've read from studies, that in the long run, it's actually cheaper because in the long run, the level of functioning for these kids, many of these kids, although they're severely impaired, Joe, are wonderful, wonderful kids. I 
I firmly believe that every human being has something to offer this world. And um, we, it may not always be apparent and that one of the things that would happen with people who have challenges, mental health challenges, is that impairs or interferes with their ability to offer whatever they have to offer to the world. And some of these kids, they're great artists. Some of them are great musicians. Some of them are great writers. But some of them, what they offer the world is what I call moments of brightness in a world that's so dark sometimes and so disturbing sometimes. A moment of someone who can give moments of brightness is someone who is, is really giving something to the world. But you can't. You can't work on getting kids to that level where they can give their moment of brightness. If if what's happening all the time is you're being forced to try, you're fighting to keep to provide the level of intensity a kid needs, the t- amount of time it need, they need to change behavior or improve behavior because behavior doesn't change overnight. Also, people have to trust parents and kids too have to trust who they're working with to help them. And trust is a relationship develops over time. It doesn't happen in 15 minutes. It doesn't happen in a half hour. Trust is a thing that develops over time. It doesn't take forever, but I see a lot of patients, adult patients, who, when I see them, they weren't following the recommendations for treatment. And even if the recommendation for treatment, I believe, was the correct one, which most of the time I do, and would have helped them. And when I ask them why, what they tell me is the doctor talked to me for 15 minutes. I didn't know him. I didn't know if he cared about me. I didn't trust him, so I didn't follow what he said. But I lied and said I did. I'll see patients that will come to me, and these are more adolescents and adults. Well, who forces doctors to be real quick, quick, as quick as you can? These are cans on a conveyor belt. See them as quick as you can and get them out of there. It's, it's waste, fraud, and abuse if you spend some time humanizing the relationship. Who's behind that? It's these insurance companies that want these patients in and out as quick as possible. They want that. They really put a lot of pressure on doctors not to spend the time, not to humanize the relationship. We're talking with people about things that are embarrassing. Things are very difficult to talk about. They need to trust that the person they're seeing really cares and really is concerned. You can't convince someone of that in 15, 20 minutes. So, that's one of the ways insurance affects because they put pressure on the system not to give the patient time to develop a relationship. And of course, it, sometimes that trust can be even more difficult if there's racial differences or gender differences and so on. Then if a patient does develop a trusting relationship with a doctor and the patient's parents or the patient themselves, their insurance company changes because their parents change jobs or lose a job. <laughs> Lately, what I've been seeing, and this is more common with the pandemic, is losing a job and losing your insurance. And now that patient has to go see other professionals, not just doctors, because their professionals aren't in that network so that they have to go and and someone who they really trust and try to develop a relationship all over again. And I've seen patients come in the hospital. What happened? You would appear to be doing well. You haven't been here for two years. What happened? Well. This is a common answer. Well, I had this doctor and this therapist I really liked and I really felt comfortable with, and then we had to change. We didn't want to change. We had to change, and I got this new person I didn't like. Or parents will say, I didn't understand what this new person was doing. We had this medication regimen that was working. We had this therapy regimen that was working. 
There's new people come in and they want to change things up. They spend 15 minutes. They don't listen when I say, this works. Can we keep it? And they change. But what's behind all that? It's in this whole thing of insurance companies siloing. And I've had patients say to me, well, can't you sign up with my insurance company? And I have to explain to a lot of patients who don't understand. It's not that simple. These insurance companies only want so many people they're going to take and, and to convince every company to take you on, you got to fill out this big, big stack of encyclopedia, one stack of papers to try to convince them to take you on. So it interferes. It really interferes with the doctor-patient relationship. Um, one thing that most recently happened that was very disturbing for me was a kid entered this residential treatment facility where I treat these autistic kids, and he came in with a condition called, he's on a medicine that's famous for causing a high prolactin level, which for boys leads to gynecomastia. And it was actually a very high level. So I started weaning him off that medicine onto something else, and he developed a condition which sometimes can happen when you wean patients off of psychotropic medicines called tardive dyskinesia. And it was pretty severe. For years, psychiatry has not had a treatment for tardive dyskinesia, but in the last four or five years, there's been a, a medical treatment from tardive dyskinesia, two medications that work. Well, guess what? These two medications, each of them, both cost $6,000 a month in the United States. I am sure they do not cost that amount in Canada or Europe. So you have this ridiculous price. And no insurance company wants to pay for it, which in a way I understand. $6,000 a month is a lot of money for a medication. And so the patient can't get a medication that we know will work to treat tardive dyskinesia. He can't get the treatment that he needs. And we know in insurance companies, I'm fighting with the insurance companies right now. Now, I got this one, we're in the process, one drug company that makes one of the drugs to give us some samples, but these samples are not going to go on for as long as he may need to treat them. They're going to give us some free samples for a couple of months. That may work. Some patients with tardive dyskinesia, that worked in a couple of months, but he may need to be on it. But suppose he's one of those patients who needs to be on it for a year. We're going to be back where we are again, where we can't get the treatment that's needed. The whole thing is about the profit-making desires of the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance company. And from my understanding, from what I've read, we had a single-payer system, and not just any single-payer system. If we had a system that was improved Medicare for all, I wouldn't have to worry about this. I could give this patient what they needed to get the treatment that they needed, and they would improve. Then you have a really crazy thing that really drives me crazy. So you have a patient that's on a medication that has worked very well for them because there's all kinds of antidepressants. There's all kinds of medicines for ADHD. There's some patients that one medicine does the trick and works well for them. For them. If you have a patient that's on either an antidepressant, we could use that. It's worked very well. They've been stable. Or another example would be a patient who's on a kid who's on an ADHD medicine. It's worked well. They've had little, no side effects, no apparent side effects, and they've been very stable. Their parent changes jobs, and they get a new insurance company, and that medicine isn't in that insurance company's formulary. This really burns me up. 
So now we destabilize the patient because someone wants to make profit because they haven't made deal with that insurance company. And you fight and you fight to get it approved. Sometimes you're successful, but sometimes you're not. So the patient is destabilized. But that's not good medicine. None of these things are practicing good medicine. So I like to say that insurance companies practice medicine when they have no license, they're not physicians to do, when they clearly do not have the patient's best interest. They're not operating in the best interest of the patient. They force doctors, and particularly doctors that work for insurance companies. I would never work for an insurance company. They force doctors to violate, to routinely violate the Hippocratic Oath. My understanding is the most important person for me in that doctor-patient relationship should be my patient. It should be their interest, which is most important. Yet, we are forced to be put in a situation where the interest of people who want to get rich compete with what is in the best interest of the patient. And if you're a doctor working for an insurance company, you definitely are violating your Hippocratic Oath because you're in the service of someone who wants to get rich despite someone's misery or even at the expense of someone's misery. This is where I get very frustrated. I get so frustrated. I, I was taking a CME course and I talked about moral injury to doctors. So I feel like this system has caused moral injury to me because I'm constantly having to struggle, try to keep my oath to make what's in the best interest of my patients the most important thing. Right now, next week, I'm going to have to go fight with an insurance company. And there's only, I have to be very vague about this because I don't want to violate this patient's confidentiality. But I have this little patient who's had a horrendous, horrendous abuse history who was adopted by a family who she and her brother had a horrendous abuse history. They're adopted by a family. The family is burned out because these when kids have horrendous abuse history, they have phenomenal behavioral disturbances and problems. And it can be very difficult to deal with this. That's why you need in-home services with sounds like what they used to call wraparound. The idea was you wrap around this family system to help support everybody in helping to give this very damaged child what they need. So this child can recognize their growth to recognize what moment of brightness they can bring to the world. So this parent is burned out and has unfortunately been clouded by her being burned out. It's becoming vindictive. She just wants this child to go to jail. Okay. So child, whenever she goes, she's been in and out of hospitals. This is not her first hospitalization. And whenever she's in a hospital or in some kind of intensive program, like a partial hospital, her behavior is okay because she's out of that system that plays into the disturbance that, that she has. And so insurance companies, of course, want her to just go because, oh, she's okay now. But the fact is she isn't. And so I'm going to have to argue with this insurance company on why I don't want her to go home right now while she's waiting to go to this long-term program that's supposed to be for kids like her with what's called reactive attachment disorder while she's waiting. Because because of COVID, this is where COVID comes in in this case, the wait times for getting into special programs is longer because programs, in order to social distance and comply with all the safety issues of the pandemic, have dramatically decreased the number of kids they're accepting at any one time in these types of programs. So it means the wait time to get into these programs is longer. So this kid's having to wait longer than she would have if we didn't have a pandemic to get in. 
to the insurance company. I'm going to have to fight with them to try to get them to understand that the sender home would be damaging. She's going to end up back in the hospital within a week anyway, if not in some juvenile justice system. By the way, her mother has already put charges against her, so the juvenile justice system is involved. But by the way, luckily, the, the um, what they call it, it's not really a probation officer who's involved. Took one look at this kid and said, this kid needs mental health. And so luckily, right now, I have the juvenile justice, but I can't guarantee that it'll always be true. She'll find somebody who will say, just put the kid in jail. We know from, we know from studies and research, this kind of kid is going to be further damaged by being in the criminal justice system and will be made worse. And her behavior will be more disturbed than if she were put in a specialized program like what I'm trying to get her into, which actually has accepted her. It's just that they have a long wait. The insurance company, I'm going to have to fight with them. I may not win. I'll do my best. So you mentioned that you thought Medicare for All, a single-payer Medicare for All system would be the solution. Do you want to expand on that any? Sure. So I don't think it's the only solution. I think it's part of the solution because, first of all, just by getting that profit motive out, you can then focus on having a system that has as its bottom line, what are the criteria that should be for best mental health, for promoting, regaining, uh, facilitating a mentally healthy environment for children who have been subjected to adverse events, events in their lives, and or have constitutional uh, challenges that make it hard for them to actualize their potential. That would be a major step forward because now you are able, under the current system, you're not able to because to make a profit, you have to, as I said, diminish and ignore these things. But if you took the profit motive out, which single-payer system does, then you can focus on, you can start to focus on so it's not it's not the only solution, but it's necessary. It's a necessary move, a necessary thing in order to solve the problem of having a fundamental change in the approach towards mental health that is focused on developing, regaining, facilitating mental health for people who have challenges either innately or due to environmental issues. It sounds like to me that also part of the solution would also be having social services that support things so that if people are having other problems, like financial problems, those can also be solved. And that you would need a combination of these services to really address the problems in a holistic way. Yes, yeah. And that would require a fundamental change in society in general. So that's why I say Medicare for All, is, it's, a, it's a necessary, but it's not the only thing. But, but you would need it. And what you're saying, we you could take the profit motive about, out of a whole range of things in our society, a whole range of psychosocial services and things. We need to look at what 
what makes a healthy society for children and for adults too. And how do we promote that? And how do we promote a healthy environment for people to thrive and people to overcome? Because you'll have challenges even if you have a healthy environment. But and to help people learn how to use their their strengths to overcome or function still function well with the challenges they have. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? So what I would like to add is that I think it's important for us, for those of us who are fighting for Medicare for All, to find ways to keep in the forefront of the public this idea that we need a system that focuses on providing a healthy, thriving environment for all of us, but particularly for children. And we need to not let, we cannot let our politicians and Congress be our guide into how we do this because they're too compromised themselves by being corrupted by big money. But we as a people have to keep in focus what we need. And then we have to figure out how health professionals, mental health professionals, together with the communities they serve, we can push and continue to push for a system that is really about meeting human need um, rather than satisfying human greed. And I and the last thing I want to say is that I would like people to consider that every single human being has their moment of brightness to bring to this world. And we should always be focused on how we can help people do that. Medicare for All is a necessity for us to move forward in meeting those challenges. Well, Dr. Cohn, as often happens, I learn a lot. And I am sorry to say that under our current system, mental health services are even worse than I thought, especially for children. And I would like to thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.